Hi folks, this is Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, will man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, if they don't. Today is July 29th, 2013, and this is episode 1174 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Monday! Monday is the day that we go back to work. Monday is the day the weekend dies. Monday is the day that's cool, though. Why is Monday cool? Because Monday, Monday is the day that you guys send me emails. Well, you send me emails all the time, but Monday's the day I take the emails you guys sent me and I put them on the show. Now, I only get five to ten emails per Monday on the show, but uh, a lot of times it's actually more than that because I'll cover something that like 50 of you guys sent me. So, you know, hopefully there's enough representation there. The point is I get a ton of email, guys, and I can't get them all on the show, but I do pretty much read every email that comes in, especially if you follow my specialized format. My specialized format is this. You put in the subject line, uh, article for Jack, question for Jack, comment for Jack, something for Jack, and that gets you filtered into a special folder to do this with. Then you make your statement or your point in one sentence or less. You immediately include a supporting link if there is one, and then you give me details after that. If you do that, I'm a lot more likely, a lot more likely, a lot more likely to, uh, to get the gist of your email. Based on email volume, I cannot read every single email cover to cover that comes in. Some of you guys insist on sending me your life story. While I appreciate it, in most instances, I, I can't read that. So try to be direct to the point and brief. Uh, just because of time constraints, folks, if I actually spent two minutes on every legitimate email that came in every day, just two minutes on every legitimate email, I would spend between eight and ten hours a day just reading email. Can't do that. So trying to help you, not being a pain in your butt or anything by telling you this format. So once you've done all that, if you send that email off to jack at the survivalpodcast.com, it could end up on a show like this. You could get a personal response from me. I do want to point out that a lot of times when people follow that format and they ask me a very cut and dry, simple question, they get an answer. Uh, it may not be on the air, but they get an answer, so I wanted to point that out as well. And if you do that, you might be on a Monday show. The email address to get in touch with me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. It's my real email. It's the best way to get in touch with me. It's a lot more likely to get a response than a private message on LinkedIn or a pinging me on Facebook or anything like that. I really use email more than anything else. not a ploy to trick you or anything like that. Private messages on forums almost inevitably will never be responded to. Please understand what I'm telling you. If you want to talk to me, email is the way. Before I get to your emails, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today is BackyardFoodProduction.com. Marjorie Wildcraft will teach you how to turn your backyard into a food production machine with her DVD series called Growing Your Groceries. Check it out today. You can find it at growingyourgroceries.com, backyardfoodproduction.com. Either place will take you to the same place. But if you'd like a special deal, don't do that. Don't don't put that in your browser. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on the banner, and there's a special link that she put there for discounts for everybody at TSP. Gets a discount on her stuff. And uh, if you're an MSB member, go into the MSB first and use a link there because you get an even bigger discount. Backyard food production. Turn your backyard into a food production machine. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. How can you be the original one? Well, you're first. They were the first people that stepped up over four years ago and said, you know what, Jack, we want to sponsor the show. We built the entire sponsorship program around them because I didn't really plan on taking sponsors when I started out. 
And uh, they've been a great supporter. They have everything you can think of for your prepping needs, from the tactical to the practical and everything else in between. Really great way to remember their website is prepared.pro, prepared.pro. That's kind of cool because they're professionals at helping you be prepared. They have a sister site you can link to when you're on their main website, which is also at safecastle.com. Um, but when you're there, if you link over to that sister site, you'll see they also build some of the best hardened shelters in the business. And, you know, if you're going to order from them and you're a member of our support brigade, before you do that, make sure you get your free discount lifetime membership from them. Yeah, see, they sell that for $49 bucks to everybody else, but if you're a member of my support brigade, you get it absolutely for free. You get big discounts on everything they sell for the rest of your life. Check it out today in the uh, benefits section of the member support brigade, and check out Safecastle today for any of your prepping needs. It's a great segue over to the member support brigade. Hey, you hear me talk about this all the time. If you're a member, you know all about it. If you've been thinking about it, what exactly is member support brigade? First and foremost, it's a way for you to support the show. comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. So if you get done listening to this show and you think, you know what, that episode was worth two dimes, yesterday's episode was worth two dimes, I really think the show is just worth 20 cents an episode roughly, then you might consider joining just for that alone. But I don't do business that way because that would kind of be like charity. Right? That'd be like a donation. So I put together this program. There's over $200 worth of free ebooks that you get the day you join. The day you sign up, you can download them. They're years. They're in PDF. You have them forever. There's discounts to over 40 vendors, and there's some content that's available nowhere else. And I'm constantly working to negotiate more discounts from you from great companies that provide good discounts on good products that you're probably buying anyway. I've got discounts on stuff for gardening. I got discounts on stuff for the tactical. I got discounts on stuff for long-term storage food. If you're buying this stuff, my membership will pay for itself many times over for you. That's how I built the product. If you are military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or if you're a first responder like a paramedic, EMT, or firefighter, it gets to be an even better deal because if you email me before, not after, but before you join, tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service, I will send you a discount code to thank you for your service. Just send that email to jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com with service discount in the subject line. Please tell me who you are and what you're doing or did in two sentences or less. Do not send me photocopies of your DD-214, your military uh, identification card, or anything like that. That is a security risk that you should not take, and I don't need all that. Just a sentence or two telling me what you did or what you're doing so I know that you're legit when you ask for the discount. With that wrapped up, let's go ahead and get into the... Uh, First email that I have today. This is one I'm not going to say a lot on. A lot of times I read something and I go, absolutely or bullshit. You know, I know immediately. This is one I don't know. And this is one that maybe the uh, science-minded among you can take a look at and maybe find some other sources for me on this. Because this is either a really cool thing or yet another example of screwing with nature that will probably screw up our ecosystem. And I'm not sure. It's being, this is being said, this is not genetically modifying the organism. I'm really, I'm not making this up. Uh, guys, I'm really not sure here. I don't know what to think about this. The permaculturist in me looks at this technology and thinks, this could be awesome. The practical side of me, GMO or not, says this could cause problems if misused, and industry probably will if it works. And then the skeptic in me says, really, it's not GMO, it sounds GMO-ish. So here's, this is on physics.org, and uh, it's called World Changing Technology Enables Crops to Take Nitrogen from the Air. Before I read this, just for people that may not know, there are certain plants like legumes, like peas and beans and certain trees, and then there's other plants that maybe are not legumes, they're not peas or bean family, but they have their own method of doing this where they can basically 
fix nitrogen in the soil. And they do this with a symbiotic relationship with soil bacteria. And different plants have different bacteria that they, they interact with. And when that soil or that bacteria and that plant's roots together interact, they produce little nodules of bacteria full of nitrogen. The plant takes nitrogen from the air, delivers it through the roots, and it's then made bioavailable to the plant and to the bacteria and to other organisms. And when the plant either dies or is pruned back, some of it's released in the soil for other plants. This is a, a common thing that people do with, with even modern agriculture if they're doing it organically or sustainably. You plant beans before a rotation of something like corn, and that puts some nitrogen into the soil. All right, so that's that's the basics of how this works for those that may not know, because sometimes I forget that there's new listeners that you know don't know that, and then you start talking about this stuff, and they're like, "What are you? What are you? What are you talking about?" My my wife says sometimes she feels like Penny uh, from Big Bang Theory, and like I'm Leonard, and she's just like, "What the hell are you talking about?" So I'll, I'll try to back up once in a while on some of this stuff. But here we go: world-changing technology enables crops to take nitrogen from the air. A major new technology has been developed by the University of Nottingham which enables all the world's crops to take nitrogen from the air rather than expensive environmentally damaging fertilizers. Nitrogen fixation, the process by which nitrogen is converted to ammonia, is, a vital, is vital for plants to survive and grow. However, only a very small number of plants, most notably legumes such as peas, beans, and lentils, have the ability to fix nitrogen from the atmosphere with the help of nitrogen-fixing bacteria. The ma vast majority of plants have to obtain nitrogen from the soil, and for most crops currently being grown across the world, this also means a reliance on synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. Professor Edward Cocking... Director of the University of Nottingham Center for Crop Nitrogen Fixation has developed a unique method of putting nitrogen-fixing bacteria into the cells of plant roots. His major breakthrough came when he found a species, a specific strain of nitrogen-fixing bacteria in sugarcane, which he discovered could inter, inter, actu, intracellularly colonize all major crop plants. This groundbreaking development potentially provides every cell in the plant with the ability to fix, nitro fix atmospheric nitrogen. The implications for agriculture are enormous as this new technology can provide much of the plant's nitrogen needs. A leading world expert in nitrogen and plant science, Professor Cocking, um, has long recognized that there's a critical need to reduce nitrogen pollution caused by nitrogen-based fertilizers. That I completely agree with. Nitrate pollution is a major problem, as is the pollution of the atmosphere by ammonia and oxides from the nitrogen. In addition to nitrate pollution, is a health hazard and also causes oxygen-depleted dead zones in our waterways and oceans. I completely agree. A recent study estimates that the annual cost of damage caused by nitrogen pollution across Europe is in excess of 60 billion uh, euros, or 280 billion oh, pounds, 280 billion pounds a year. Speaking about the technology, which is known as NFIX, Professor Cocking said, helping plants to naturally obtain nitrogen they need is a key aspect of world food security. The world needs to unhook itself from an ever-increasing reliance on synthetic nitrogen fertilizers produced from fossil fuels with its high economic costs, its pollution of the environment, its high energy costs. NFIX is neither genetic modification nor bioengineering. It is a naturally occurring nitrogen-fixing bacteria which takes up and uses nitrogen from the air. So far, this all sounds good. Listen, though, it kind of takes a turn here in a second. Applied to the cells of the plants intracellular via the seed. Applied to the cells of plants intracellular via the seed. It provides every cell in the plant with the ability to fix nitrogen. 
Plant seeds are coated with these bacteria in order to create a symbiotic, mutually beneficial relationship and naturally produce nitrogen. I'm going to stop there. And I'm going to say that's where, okay, so what you're telling me is you've altered the seed in a way that makes every cell of the plant able to fix nitrogen. Every cell of the plant would include the part I'm eating, the leaves, the stalks, the stems, and how you do that without getting into the genetic code, I don't know. So if you are scientifically minded, if you are a chemist or biochemist or organic chemist, might be best. I'd like somebody to take a deep look at this for me and let me know what's really going on here, whether this is what they claim or whether this is some BS or whether it's something more likely in between the two. The concept of turning any plant that you want to fix nitrogen into a plant able to do that on the surface is very exciting. It would basically eliminate the need for nitrogen-based fertilizers. And the environmental damage done by the excessive use of nitrogen fertilizers is extensive. It is, it is massive, the amount of damage done by dumping this crap on our fields year after year after year. But there's multiple reasons that it causes a problem. This is where it concerns me. It is not just that we take the nitrogen itself and put it on the field. It is what we don't do to the field because we can put the nitrogen onto the field. And we, we destroy the organic matter in our soils and understand that we don't just put nitrogen on the, uh, the fields. We dump a, a fertilizer with specifically nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, or NPK. And uh, when we put that on the field, we're also supplementing the phosphorus and the potassium. This would not eliminate the need for the phosphorus and the potassium, only the nitrogen, which, yes, could curtail a lot of environmental damage and reduce the cost of producing food as long as this isn't you know, patented and the seed doesn't cost so much, you might as well use, see what I mean? So there's a financial component here. Does it really free farmers or does it enslave them to yet another technology? But it, what does it do to incentivize care of the soil? Because the problem that we have with the soil isn't just the nitrogen. It's the whole damn thing washing into the watershed because the soil is dust and there's nothing there to hold it together and there's no organic matter to hold it together and there's nothing to hold back nutrient and all the nutrients washing out. Not just nitrogen. Nitrogen is just the worst one. So what this actually could do, even if it's everything they say, is further increase the likelihood that modern agriculture would further degrade and destroy the soils. Because, hell, we don't need nitrogen anymore. We don't need organic matter anymore at all. We don't even need fertilizer. The plants do it. They put nitrogen in the, in the dirt. You can't call it soil with what's happening to it. So that's another problem. The next problem is I don't necessarily believe that this is not genetic engineering. If you are creating an intracellular relationship at the seed level, I I just don't know how that gets done without GMO. So I'd like somebody to look at this for me. I'll send it off to Jeff Lott and see if maybe he knows someone that can uh, take a look at it and uh, give us an opinion on it uh, from a pro professional scientific level because something something about this just doesn't jive with me, though... It's at least on the right track. It's at least on the right track. It's trying to solve the problem using these technologies versus just um, exasperate the problems. Again, though, as, I, as I, I look at this, I see a real potential for it. You get all the farmers using this special seed. They can't save it. They can't reproduce it. They're not sustainable. It has a problem that way. And 
it again says there's no need to worry about nitrogen in the soil anymore. The, the plants will do it. Um, which even if they do, you know, unless you leave the roots in the soil and, and go to no-till, you're yanking it out when you, when you harvest the silage. So you plant your corn, you pull your corn off the stalk, um, you know, but if you, if you pull the corn stub out of the ground instead of tilling it in, all that nitrogen that got fixed that year is gone. Uh, now the, you know, the soil is denuded and I mean, it, it, it's like people are using band-aids to try to fix a gangrenous wound. You know, there's, a, there's some blood coming out there, so stick a band-aid on it, but it's, it's, it's infected. So, anyway, I'd like somebody to take a look at this at a deeper scientific level. Let's go on to another story. So we have at least two, um, unfortunately, Jack was right uh, stories came in coming in this week. This is the first one from Greg, Greg in Texas. Greg says, gee, Jack, I think you called this one a while back, and it's uh, an article from foxnews.com. California tries to mandate retirement savings for private workers. Before I read it, I'm going to tell you what I said in the past. Uh, I was going to go back and try to find it, but there's so many shows and so many hours of programming, it's hard to find it. You'll just have to trust me that I said this. And those that have been around will remember me saying just this, that as more and more states get closer and closer to bankruptcy, what states will do is put together quote-unquote retirement count accounts um, for uh, workers in their states. And they'll sell it first to the people that are the poorest. Uh, you know, these poor people don't have a way to save. They can't afford a 401k and Social Security doesn't pay them that much money. And we need to have like our own state level program for these people. And that eventually after they did that, that people that didn't qualify under the low income standard or whatever would basically scream, hey, we want it too. We, why can't we have this? Right. And that what it would do is funnel millions and billions of dollars into this account. And then the state would manage the account, promise a return. And then the state would basically have this big slush fund of money to rob. They would create their own little Ponzi scheme, just like Social Security. For those that don't know, your Social Security money is not going to pay for your Social Security retirement. Your grandchildren's Social Security money will pay for your retirement if it's still solvent by the time this happens. When you pay into Social Security and your employer matches it, okay, when that happens, guess what occurs? The money goes in. So you think you pay about 7%. You don't. You pay 14 So if you worked for me. And I had, and you paid $250 this month in Social Security. I pay $250 too. So you get $500 put into your account with quotes or air quotes. Big ass lying air quotes around it. Okay. And then the government takes that $500 and spends it on all kinds of shit. Some of it gets spent to pay the Social Security check of someone who's already retired, but some of it gets to buy all other types of crap in our, in our government's, you know, repertoire of crap they buy they can't afford and when that money runs out and the tax money runs out they just print more and borrow more and that's how the deck grows but social security is turned into a giant slush fund it's used to pay for all kinds of shit that don't have nothing to do with retired people and it's part of how they've kept the country from going bankrupt for so long even though we are bankrupt because we can print money i said the states would look at this and go huh, huh, we can do that too because the money that goes in will not be money that just goes into, in Al Gore's words, and it was never going to happen even if Gore got elected, a lockbox. It's not going to go in a lockbox. It's going to go in the state's spendable fund. And they'll take the money and leave behind an IOU. Basically, they'll force you to buy a state bond with none of the insurances of a state bond. 
That, that's what a retire, that's what Social Security is. Social Security is like buying a U.S. savings bond that pays less interest that you have no choice but to purchase without the guaranteed on paper return of a bond. And the states would start doing this too. Okay? I even said California would do it first. Because they were talking about doing it, and I said they'll do it. And people said, no, they can't do that. So here's what Greg says to me today. California tries to mandate retirement savings for private workers, published July 25th, 2013. Dun, dun, dun. Is it another case of the nanny state? or in any innovative way to help you save. California lawmakers are pushing a controversial first-in-the-nation plan that would require private sector employers to remove 3% from every worker's paycheck. The money would go into a new state fund with a guarantee that all withheld funds plus investment gains will be available for distribution at retirement age. Let me give you the no-bullshit, no-polished version of that. California lawmakers have a plan that will take California workers and steal 3% of the workers' money, not the employer's money yet, the workers' money against their will and put it into a state fund that does not have to be paid back until that worker retires. And it'll probably be something like 70 years of age. They might even do 75 and say, well, Social Security gets started and this is a long-term plan, see? right? And they could change the rules anytime they want because they're the government. Right, so this is what it actually. This is what it says in the, in print, and this is even Fox News. So you know, is not friendly to it. The California lawmakers are pushing controversial first in uh, nation plan that would require private sector employers to remove three percent from every worker's paycheck. That is, they will require employers to steal three percent of the employee's money and give it to the state as a tax that will be paid back in the future. That's what they're really saying. The idea behind the Secure, Chase, Secure Choice Retirement Savings Program, which got preliminary approval, is for it to be a state-run supplement to Social Security, but only for people who don't have traditional workplace retirement plans. So if you have a 401k, you don't get to do this. So the employer can continue to bear the costs of a 401k, because it's not free to run a 401k for your employees. Or they could just stick you in this state thing and be done with it. Sounds like Obamacare, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, just just let me read it. It is it is for a state-run supplement of Social Security, but only for people who don't have workplace retirement plans. And an estimated for an estimated six million working Californians, the benefits of a pension or 401k are out of reach. They can't have it's out of reach for them to have a 401k. Though their employer couldn't give them a 401k and let them put 3% of their own money in there. It's why not? Why is that impossible? Why is it out of reach? Because they don't want to put the money in. We'll get to that in a second. So the state lawmakers are trying to implement a new mandatory retirement fund for private sector workers. That would be a new tax, just so you don't get confused by words. But critics wonder how the state, with a turbulent record of budget keeping, uh, that is actually, uh, critics wonder how a state who's going broke and pisses away money like it's, like it's, like it's somebody else's, cause it is, is gonna manage this thing. That's what that is. Uh, keeping a much ridiculed public worker pension system can be counted on to protect the people's money. In other words, they can't manage the retirement of their own state workers. How are they going to do it for non-state workers? Quote, I think you'll find out that what is promised in the Secure Choice Plan is not possible to deliver, end quote. 
Gee, government would make a promise that's not possible to deliver? No. Lobbyist Mark Burkrat contends. You know, this guy's probably sleaze, but he's probably right. I, I really don't like lobbyists. Uh, quote, if you could deliver guaranteed returns with less than 1% cost, no employer liability, and no government liability, that's a fantasy. So here's what they're saying. They're going to run the program. It's only going to have a 1% cost and give a guaranteed return with no government liability and no employer liability. So the government's not going to be liable, the employer's not going to be liable, and the return's going to be guaranteed at only a 1% cost. you got to be kidding me. Really? How do, how do people buy into this? Right? But for years, financial experts have warned that people shouldn't solely depend on their Social Security benefits for retirement income. What does that have to do with this? The average California retiree only collects $14,000 per year in Social Security. Advocates of this new effort say the supplemental savings plan will provide a needed boost to retirement needs. Quote, there are pros and cons to the various approaches, end quote. Behavioral financial expert Shalomo Benzati explained to Fox News, quote, but I think the critical ingredient is to make it easier for people to save for retirement, end quote. You're making it easier because you're doing it for them. That's there's the no bullshit by stealing their money and saying it's saving for them. You're making it easier. Now, you're not giving the money. The employer's not giving the money. You're taking. Remember this when you hear some stuff from workers here in a second, you're taking the workers money away from them against their will. Okay, Benzati, who teaches at UCLA, well, that's great. UCLA advising the government, that's just great. And represents the Alliance Global Investor Center for Behavioral Finance. Really? Okay. Understands the argument of critics, but disagrees that this is an area where government should butt out. Quote, we eat too much, we drink too much. We don't save enough. I think the difference in the case of savings is I think we can fix it by making it easier to spend less and save more, he said. How is it easier to spend less and save more because you took somebody's money that they now do not have when they were already having... You understand that the people they're talking about helping are the ones that live paycheck to paycheck and have the least money. That's why they're not saving it. They don't have enough money to save, so you'll just make them do it by taking their money. Fox News talked to several California workers who employers, whose employers don't offer them retirement benefits. The exact people's Secure Chase program is designed to help. Each like the idea. Quote, most people can't save money and then save it for when you're retired. It is very hard. It would be like saving it for 50 years, said Cody, a waitress. Really? It would be like saving it for 50 years. Do you understand, Cody, that they're taking your money to do this with? Pascal, who works on movie sets, said, quote, you need to look for the future, and it's just too hard at this point to do it by yourself. Really? This is how stupid we are? This is how freaking dumb we've become? Pascal, who works on movie sets, said, you need to look for the future, and it's just too hard at this point to do it by yourself. Pascal, look to the future by yourself, you dumbass. It's your money. If you want 3% of your money saved, open a bank account... For your checking account, open a bank account for your savings account and have 3% of your check automatically deposited into savings. At least it'll be your freaking money you can get to, you dumbass. I'm sorry to snap out here. I cannot believe that this is happening. Even though I said it would happen. You can read the rest of this freaking article if you want to on your own. Do you understand what's going on here? Do you understand this is coming to a state near you or a state you're in very soon? They're going to go in 
and they are going to create a state level, this is state level social security. We have a failed Ponzi scheme at the federal level and the dadgone states are going to follow suit and they're not doing it to help people. This is stave off the, the bankruptcy of the states. Let's do a little math. This first test case. And by the way, I'm not going to read the rest of the article because I'm going to have a freaking aneurysm. I'm going to have a freaking aneurysm if I read the rest of this freaking article. But it goes on to say, if an employer doesn't put you in the program and you're supposed to be, the employer gets fined. So the employer can either be fined or put you in a program that doesn't cost them anything. So everybody's going in. So there's six million people that right now, six million working Californians that will absolutely go into this program when it passes the state legislature, and the nut jobs out in California are going to do this. This is going to pass. This is going to happen. There's going to be very little to any real opposition to it because California has lost its freaking mind. So, six million people. Let's do a little bit of math on how much money the state can put in its little slush fund with this. Well, here you go, friends. It doesn't sound like a lot. It's only 3%. Six million people... California has a minimum wage of $8 an hour. I know not everybody in this program will work full-time hours, but many will, many won't, and many will make more than eight. Maybe some will make 10, 11, 12, 13. You're probably going to qualify this program up to about $14, $15 an hour or more. Okay? As long as your employer does not offer a, a IRA or a 401k or a conventional pension program, which almost no one in, in California can afford to offer in the first place because of how Screwed up it is. So we've got 6 million people at $8 an hour. That's an average weekly wage of 320 bucks, right? A, 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 a month. 3% of that's about 9 bucks a head. So about $9 a head. So 9 times 6 million, right? $54 million a week, right? Times 52 weeks. That's. <laughs> That's $280 million a year. I think it might be more. I'm going to check this math. Hold on. See, I'm glad I checked. I'm glad I checked the math here. Check this out. I don't know. I mean, I'm just so pissed that, that, that people are willing to let this happen. Just with the poorest among us in California, 3% of their money, 6 million people, an average of 9 bucks a head a week is $54 million a week. It goes into this slush fund for the state of California. They don't have to pay those people back until they retire. That's $2.7 billion a year. That's $2.7 billion a year, which is uh, $27 billion over 10 years. And the state says they're not liable for it. The employer's not liable for it. It will be taken from the employee whether they want it or not. And it'll only have a 1% fixed cost. And it'll be guaranteed back even though they're not liable for it and for God's sakes, the employer's not liable for it. So who's liable for it? Well, what they'll say is it's a private program run by the state. So it'll be run by people, I don't know, like former Goldman Sachs executives. But this is what's going to happen. This has become a state asset. A $2.7 billion state asset can be borrowed against, can be leveraged, And what they're going to do, I'm telling you they're going to do this. They will just take the money out every year. They will use the money to pay existing costs. And then they will put an IOU there, just like the federal government does. And I told you it was going to happen. 
And, and the most, you know, the biggest lunatic asylum in the 50 states, California is going to be the one to do it first. You watch Illinois do this. You watch Illinois with over a hundred billion dollars worth of, of retirement they can't afford. Go to do this next. And they'll see it as a way. And you know what Illinois will say? We're going to do this. We're going to be, we're going to be much more progressive than California. We're going to do this for everybody. And you watch how long it takes when people start realizing when, when Cody, realizes that, you mean they're going to take that money from me? And when Pascal realizes it's going to be like 50 years and it's hard to see the future without help, they're going to take his money, they're going to go, I can't afford it. And they'll say, well, you know what, let's do this. Let's just come up with a compromise. Let's let's let Pascal and Cody spend about 450 a week because they can afford that. You know, they get an earned income credit anyway that pays them back more than they pay in in taxes. And we'll just let the employer match it and just tell the employer, screw off. Yeah, we didn't say, we said you were going to have to do this matching funds thing, but it's only four bucks. Shut up and put it up. And then the middle class sheep and the upper middle class sheep will go, why can't we get one of these two? And if I need to connect the dots to, for you from there, if I need to explain to you how this absolutely destroys what's left of our country and puts us into greater debt and more problems than we've ever been in before, I'm not going to bother. You should be able to figure it out from yourself at this point. All right, so here's one from uh, James in Tennessee. This article is about a congressional member's bill to block federal funds to states that don't amend their stand-your-ground laws to include a duty to retreat or register their neighborhood watch programs with the local police. I have heard you say before the best plan is to avoid conflict rather than stand your ground in most situations. How does a duty to retreat change all this? I don't think this would include defending your own home or family, but I'm not sure how the law would be interpreted. Let me read you the article first, and we'll split it in half because there's two things going on here. Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, Democrat Texas, said Wednesday that she would soon introduce legislation that would cut federal funding to any state that doesn't require neighborhood watch programs to register with police. Jackson Lee said her Justice Exists for All Act, Justice Exists for All Act, is a response to the trial of George Zimmerman, who was found not guilty for the murder and manslaughter charges after shooting 17-year-old Trayvon Martin. Zimmerman was the neighborhood watch coordinator in a Florida neighborhood where the shooting took place. We will decrease the incidence of gun violence resulting from vigilantes by reducing 20% of the funds that would otherwise be allocated. What a pea brain. To any state that does not require local neighborhood watch programs to be registered with local law enforcement agency, Jackson Lee said on her house floor. Uh, this is the same stupid shit that you see all the time from government. Um, maybe somebody should tell Sheila Jackson Lee, who is a moron, who is a complete moron, by the way. One of the worst things to exist in the state of Texas is this idiot. Um, that the neighborhood watch that George Zimmerman was part of was absolutely known about by the police in the local area. That he he had been in contact with the law enforcement in that area many times as the as the guy that actually started that neighborhood watch. So so nothing would have changed there. Okay, just just the first whole part of the bill is completely meaningless. Completely meaningless. And by the way, somebody should also tell this pea brain that we live in the United States of America, which is still a republic protected by our constitution, and to have a group of people. They keep an eye on our neighborhood. We don't need to register with freaking anybody. And it would be about as unconstitutional as it gets if they passed that. And it's probably grounds for pulling some Congress people out of their seat if they ever did. Okay. She said her bill would also use the threat of less federal money to entice states to change their, quote, stand your ground laws. Jackson Lee said her bill would only allow states to avoid a cut if their laws are amended to include a, quote, duty to retreat. 
quote, for states that do not require a duty to retreat, we will question their federal funding. We will question their federal funding. Okay, we, who's we? And assess their Justice Department funding and reduce it by 20%, she said. She was not specific about what the change might mean for state laws. Florida has a, quote, stand your ground, end quote, law, which allows people to use deadly force against others when they think their lives are in danger in certain cases. In his trial, George Zimmerman did not rely on Florida's stand your ground law, Let me read that again. So this is all in response to, to, to the Zimmerman trial. In his trial, Zimmerman did not rely on Florida's stand-your-ground law and instead used a traditional self-defense argument leaning on stand-your-ground could have allowed the court to decide early on in the case that Zimmerman's actions were protected, which would have ended the prosecution's option of pursuing criminal or civil charges. Jackson Lee said her bill would also require U.S. Attorney General to study state to study the state-level stand-your-ground laws. Let's speak to the plain, let's, let's speak to the pain of the American people, she said. Let's look at ways of fixing the law. So, in response to the Zimmerman trial, which Ms. Jackson Lee believes was wrong, that the verdict, the people that were entrusted to judge the law got it wrong. I'm sure she would have thought they were great people if they had gotten it right in her view. Right? She wants this law that requires neighborhood watches to be registered with the local police department, which I don't know if you call it registration, but there's absolutely no doubt that Zimmerman and his neighbor wa neighborhood watch program were known of by the local police, and to remove the stand your ground law, which didn't even play a part in the verdict that the jury rendered. That the defense didn't even use the stand your ground portion of the law to defend their client who was found not guilty. So like most proposed laws, this, this, this proposal doesn't have anything to do with the grandstanding bullshit that it's being made in opposition to. In other words, it's like saying everybody that gets on an airplane will have to have ID, which the people that got on during 9-11 all had ID. All right, so let's not go down that rabbit hole. Let's, let's talk about the two sides of this. Okay, the first side of this. The first side of this is, who is Sheila Jackson Lee and does anybody give a shit? And the answer is, Sheila Jackson Lee is a congressman out of a, a warped, mentally depraved district in Texas that will put her in office because there's a D after her name. And if you ran a dog with a D after his name against a fine, upstanding person with an R after their name, the dog would win. Jackson Lee remains a congresswoman because nobody with a D after their name has ever challenged her position. She is an idiot, and she is about as irrelevant as it comes. Sheila Jackson Lee has not introduced a damn thing that's ever been passed ever, even by this group of Congress clowns. Sheila Jackson Lee is absolutely 100% irrelevant. She's got nothing done in Congress, yet you hear her running her mouth all the time because since she knows she's irrelevant, she takes every single thing like this and uses it because she knows if, if, if a black congresswoman proposes legislation like this in the wake of the Zimmerman verdict, she'll get publicity. And that is all. And this means nothing because of that. Sheila Jackson Lee couldn't get a motion into law no matter what she did because nobody even in Congress takes her seriously because she has such a pathetic track record of getting nothing done. The end. And the current Congress that she's in wouldn't even, wouldn't even let that crap into a committee. That's going nowhere. 
Okay, And it never was going to go anywhere, and it was only to get publicity so you would hear her name. Because this woman is never going to hold a higher office. She's never going to get anything done, and her legacy will be one of nothing. Nothing. I hope somebody that works for her office or something can pass that along. You are irrelevant, useless, and you get nothing done. Miss Lee. Okay. Just, just want to get that off my chest. So the whole thing's bullshit. It doesn't matter anyway. But let's look at the bigger issue. The stand your ground law and what it actually says. And duty of retreat. So what this does not mean, it does not mean you can walk down the street, walk up to somebody, punch them in the face, and then when they come after you, shoot them. And not have a duty of retreat because you've aggressed, you've started the conflict. I explained all of this and how it would have related to a manslaughter conviction if the jury had been convinced that Zimmerman was the initial physical aggressor in the conflict. If that happened, his actions led to, then would have led to the death of Trayvon Martin. Even if he had been right in defending himself at that point as the aggressor and starter of the conflict, it was an action that could be avoided. What Stand Your Ground says is if you feel threatened, you have no duty to retreat if you have the ability to defend yourself. That's all. That's all. Now, does that mean that you shouldn't de-escalate the conflict, or you shouldn't get away from the conflict if you can? No, it doesn't. And if you do something that is considered reckless and willful in, in failing to retreat, that's actually prosecutable even with the states that have this. We, we covered all this with, with Masada Yub. Uh, on, on how to basically stay out of jail if you ever have to use deadly force. The reason you have a no duty of retreat is because it's so subjective. So he could have retreated. Really? When? When, when this kid was on top of him, beating the hell out of him, pounding his head into the, the pavement, telling him he was going to die tonight? That was the time to retreat? See, here's the thing. Let's say that you are aggressing on me. Let's say I go to draw my weapon. For whatever reason, you are also armed, you're much larger than me, there's three or four of you. If I have a duty of retreat, what am I supposed to do, turn around and run? How do I know that one of you isn't going to shoot me? How do I know that one of you isn't faster than me? How do I know that in the, the, the instance that I'm at now, I'm in a standoff, I have my eyes on all of you, I have my hand on my weapon, I have an ability to come to bear with that weapon and defend myself. You have the opportunity as the aggressor to retreat. You are the one now as the aggressor with the duty of retreat. Not me. Anything I do at that point puts me in a position where I become more likely to end up being a victim and lose the conflict. So I should not have a duty of retreat because you aggressed on me in the first place. And that's what Stand Your Ground is about. Stand Your Ground has absolutely nothing to do with a situation where you initiate the conflict it has to do with you being victimized and while this idiot will never get this passed who knows if they might try to do this from somebody that actually has a track record of getting things done and isn't a complete simpleton idiot like Sheila Jackson Lee is Sheila Jackson Lee you are a complete simpleton idiot you got publicity on my show but that's how you got I hope you're happy so the, the concept here there's a lot of things in this one which is why I went ahead and covered it Number one, that once again, government wants to pass a law in response to an occurrence that it would not have changed had the law been passed. If there was no stand-your-ground law, okay, and if neighborhood watches had to register with the police, the Zimmerman incident would have happened exactly the way that it did because the stand-your-ground uh, defense was not used and the local police department were fully aware of Zimmerman's neighborhood watch. 
So that's the first, and that's something we have to start looking at, guys, when you hear the government with a solution saying, we need to fix this with this. Would it have even mattered? And the answer is no. Number two, a lot of times what you guys need to do, and I know after I snap my gasket over California, but they're doing that. Understand that, right? So it's, it's not in conflict with them to say, you can't get all riled up over some shit because some congressman provoke, pr proposed something. 97% of proposed legislation never even gets voted on. It never even gets voted on, let alone into a committee or through a committee or whatever. And when you see people like this proposing some shit like this, especially when you have a Republican-controlled Congress and you have some nutjob Democrat proposing something, or flip it around, when you have a Democratic-controlled Congress and an extreme Republican proposing something equally stupid, okay, then it's, it's, it's only... For attention. And then it's time for the American people to employ their greatest weapon, apathy. You don't, you don't matter, Sheila Jackson. We're not going to oppose your legislation because it's meaningless anyway, because it's not, it's not even going to be proposed legislation. It's your crap on a piece of paper that you might as well wipe your butt with and flush because it's not going nowhere. So goodbye, goodbye, go out. All right. But number three, it is important that we understand why something like Stand Your Ground exists. Because if you have a duty of retreat, it's extremely subjective as to where the line of retreat lies. Do I have an opportunity for retreat? Well, none of the four giant men that were going to beat your brains in, Mr. Spirico, had shown you a gun or a knife yet. You had a gun, why didn't you just start walking backwards? I did, they came after me. Why didn't you turn around and run away? Because I don't want to turn my back to them. Oh, see, you had a duty of retreat. You didn't retreat. You shot them. You see how that works? Duty of retreat is nonsense. There is no duty of retreat. The duty of retreat should lie, yes, in, in the, there should be a duty of retreat in a conflict. It should lie with the aggressor. If at any point the aggressor realizes that the conflict could go lethal, they have a duty to retreat to end up not dead. And if they fail their duty of retreat, the consequence is a bullet in the frickin' brain, and they end up dead, and that's what's called justice. That's what's called justice. Real justice is when you attempt to harm somebody, if you end up dead, all you get is some dirt kicked over top of you. That's real justice. Let's take another one. All right, up next is an email from uh, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> I don't think it's actually the reincarnated person. It's just someone that wants to remain anonymous for whatever reason. But it's a uh, it's an article from Asia Today. Uh, RMB approaching safe haven status. So let me read this for you. Central bankers are preparing to welcome the RMB as an emerging global reserve currency. As the Chinese yawn in global speak, by the way, the RMB. Um, alongside the U.S. dollar and the euro, fluctuations in the yawn are already influencing central bank policies in Asia. While the wider global community chatters excitedly about the internationalization of the Chinese yuan, uh, the conversation among central bankers is about its role as a reserve currency. Indeed, central banks in those Asian countries, which have strong trade and economic links with China, already include the renminbi, And in their portfolio of reserve currencies. And I, I probably need to explain that. Um, it, it's a bit weird. It, it, this is the best way to explain it. Um, Renembi are banknotes, like saying the dollar is a greenback, and they're available in denominations from 
one jowl or whatever, how they say it, to 100 yon. So when you hear renemity and uh, yon, it's really the same thing, and it's not worth really worrying about what the right word is. And they get used interchangeably like this lady that wrote this article is doing here. So whenever you hear either one, just understand it's the Chinese dollar, all right? And it would probably be better if we just called it that so that people would understand, at least in these articles, uh, or just the Chinese currency. All right. Listening to discussions during recent high-level conferences, it is clear that while it is not quite an international currency, the RMB is already a regional currency. And for this reason, fluctuations in the Chinese yuan increasingly affect the exchange rate of Asian currencies and influence the policies of their central banks. Chinese Prime Minister Li Keqiang has foreshadowed partial opening of China's capital account to allow the RMB to trade in an even wider band. The Chinese are also expected to liberalize interest rate movements. These moves are widely anticipated. The question is when. Quietly, however, the yuan is taking its place alongside the U.S. dollar, the euro, and the yen as a reserve currency. A couple of central bankers from the U.S., along with currency strategists from leading global banks executives from the Bank of International Settlements, or BIS, and top academics who research focus is on Chinese currency gathered in Hong Kong in May to swap notes on the growing influence of the RMB. The most optimistic of speakers at the conference, which was hosted by the economics and finance faculty of the City University, believes the U.S. will cease to be the world's only reserve currency in the not-too-distant future. Instead, what is described as a multipolar world, the speaker believes that the RMB, the U.S. dollar, and the euro will make up 90% of the world's reserve currencies, leaving the remaining 10% to be shared among smaller currencies, including the yen and the Swiss franc. We see plenty of evidence that central banks wanting to include the renminbi in their basket of reserve currency, said senior executive of Basel-based BIS, which represents central bankers. The Bank of Thailand, for example, is one central bank already including the RMB in its reserve basket. This explains why the Thai bot has been moving with appreciating uh, with the appreciating yuan against the U.S. dollar and the euro. You can read the rest of the article if you want to. Let me explain what's going on. The China, who makes the cheap crap that was never taken seriously for all these years, people like me kept saying will be the leading global economy by 2020, that we will be second at best in the world economically by 2020, is slowly but surely making the move to take their currency and make it seem equivalent to the dollar and eventually to be seen as superior to the dollar as a safe haven. What do you mean by safe haven? Okay, well, there's a fact that nations all over the world have been incredibly unstable. That nations that were incredibly stable one day, like Argentina, completely break down the next day. And that people with money in these countries have typically purchased other assets and held other denominations of currencies as a place to protect their wealth. And the good old U.S. dollar has been the global standard for a long time. If you wanted to make sure your money was safe, hold dollars. Now, how do you hold dollars? Well, you know, you can get a bank account that holds dollars. But generally speaking, the way that most major investors hold dollars is through purchasing U.S. debt. They buy U.S. bonds, and that bond is denominated in dollars. So it creates an incredible flow of money into this country. Coupled with the fact that it's the world's reserve currency and the petrodollar, as they call it, if two countries were exchanging goods and services with each other, that they had to do the transaction in dollars. So let's say that, 
I don't know, Australia wanted to sell kangaroo tail meat to, to France just to make it funny and something to think about, and maybe they really do this. So instead of, you know, Fran France used to have the franc, and now they have the euro. Instead of France giving the, the Australians euros, who would then convert it to Australian dollars, right, and getting the kangaroo meat, what would happen is the French uh, currency, either the euro or the franc, depending on how old we're talking about here, would get converted to dollars. The dollars would be sent to Australia. The kangaroo meat would be sent to France, right? And then the Australians would convert the U.S. dollar to the Australian dollar, meaning that we had a monopoly. We're like the house in a, in a, in a casino on every transaction in the world. Well, over the past years, I've been saying this is, this is going to end. And, and countries who are friendly with us, like Australia, they are an ally. They are a staunch ally, have created trade agreements with China circumventing the dollar. And the, the, the Chinese currency is becoming in the world considered equal in safety and stability to the dollar and seen as a safe haven, but more so as that happens, becoming an acceptable unit of international exchange. It's actually in some ways easier for many nations to use a third-party currency for exchange. It's more stable. Those two nations, if they're small with a lot of fluctuations, might have a lot of things go on on both sides of the coin, so to speak, during that transaction if it's a long-term transaction. But if you use a euro or a dollar or the Chinese currency, that's a pretty much stable currency. And that means that the deal stays equitable all the way through. What did we used to use for this? Hmm, I know, gold. Deals were done in ounces of gold or ounces of gold and silver or ounces of silver. And that way the deal stayed equitable even if there was fluctuations on both sides of the deal. The dollar came in as the answer to that when the world left the gold standard. But the Chinese are buying lots of gold and lots of gold production. And basically what they're doing right now is creating a gold reserve behind their currency. Without actually calling it a gold-backed currency, they're saying, hey, This is how much gold we have, and this is how much money we have, so we're kind of saying this is the asset back in the currency, but we just haven't flipped the final switch yet. The U.S. is losing its position of prominence in the world right now, right in front of you, no matter what the TV tells you, no matter what anybody says, no matter what anybody says, the dollar will be the reserve currency for a long time to come. It's bullshit. The dollar will not be the reserve currency by the year 2020. Does that mean that cats and dogs will live together and have baby ducks uh, for, for, for puppy kittens? No. Does that mean the road warrior will come down your road and steal your tomatoes because the dollar loses its reserve status? No. But what it does mean is our days of completely dominating the rest of the world with not just hard power, military power, but also soft power are ending. It means the days that we can just print money on demand and get away with it are ending. It means the days where we can always get more money are ending. It means the day of reckoning for over $17 trillion of debt. And by the way, by the year 2020, it'll be about $24, $25 trillion worth of debt. And $150 trillion in unfunded liabilities is coming soon. And China has played a wonderful game of chess from about 1976 until today. And I'm not saying they have a great form of government. I'm not saying I admire their oppression of their people or anything like that. I just had this conversation with my brother-in-law. Yeah, but they do this. And yeah, it's not the freaking point. Good God. Our flag is better than their flag. I mean, that's, that's the argument people are making. 
That's the, they want to be like, ah, China this, China's communist. China has been brilliant with the, that doesn't mean they don't have their own problems. They do. The whole world has its economic problems. It means that they've set themselves up to be the big dog when the party ends and the rebuilding begins. And we need to understand this. We really do. Let's take another one. How about something that pulls me out of all this political crap for a minute? All right. Long-time listener ever since the Peace Corps in 2009. My wife and I are buying our first house, and we're struggling between trying to maximize appreciation value as an investment, getting a desirable location in a city center, etc., with getting a piece of semi-rural property. Is this a reasonable debate to have, or is rural the only way to go at this point? Thanks. Okay, this is from Daniel. Daniel, listen, man. You're asking me what your opinion should be about your own life. And I really can't speak to that directly. I can, I'm going to talk indirectly about it in just a second. But in the end, Daniel, you have to decide where you want to live, how long you're going to be there, and when you're going to leave, and where you're going to go next. And you have to plan your life. And I can't plan your life for you. Is it reasonable to decide between semi-rural, rural, and urban? Yes, of course it's reasonable. You have to live there. All right, but let's talk about some things. Let's say you plan on living there five years and leaving. You are gambling with money. Understand that. Buying real estate with the intent of flipping it in four or five years is gambling with money. It's relatively safe compared to going down to the casino and throwing $50,000 on black and letting the wheel spin. Um, but there's a lot of things that can go wrong. No matter where you buy, no matter how trendy the area, no matter how one the up ticket is, no matter how up and coming the neighborhood's there, and no matter how many uppies are living there already, but I can understand the mindset. All right. But what does maximizing appreciation value do for you if you don't plan on moving anytime soon? All it does is make you pay higher taxes. Do you get that? My house is now worth a million dollars. Great. Hope you like paying taxes on a million dollars, dumbass. Seriously, if you're not going to leave, that's all it's done for you. You had to, to, to make the appreciation have any real value for you, you have to monetize it. What does monetizing the appreciated value of a house mean? There's only two ways to do it. The dumbass way and the smart way. The dumbass way is to say, now that my house is appreciated from $500,000 to $750,000, I can borrow $250,000 more on it, have interest and debt on top of that, but I can take that money and do something else with it, like put it back in the house and make it worth even more money, I can do it again. Or take a vacation, or sit on the money and lose money in, in the, the... But you got it, right? I mean, you have to borrow the money is one way, which means increasing the mortgage debt. Or you sell the house, capitalize on the equity gain, go somewhere else and put it into a house with a lower cost of living. See, appreciated doesn't mean shit unless you can monetize the appreciation. All the appreciation does increase your tax burden on the property. So if your plan is, well, we're going to be living somewhere for three years and moving again, then thinking very seriously about the opportunity to buy smart and capitalize on that appreciation has a place. I'm not saying it's going to work, but it has a place, and it does work, and I have been able to buy and sell five houses and capitalize on appreciated value on all five of them So it, it, without even buying in trendy upper-end neighborhoods. I've been able to make money on every home we've ever owned, ever, and with the exception of the Arkansas home, I don't think we ever owned a home for more than five years. 
So even buying in the type of area that we was a semi-rural, which is suburban, I mean, we've had both, and even very rural in Arkansas, we've always been able to do that by thinking smart about the purchase. So it's not one versus the other, right? It's where do you want to live? Now, long-term living. Would I plan on living long-term in the type of urban area that would maximize appreciation value? No. But that's because I would want to kill myself if I had to live there, surrounded by the type of people that live there, that would get in my face and bother me with everything that I want to do. Okay? So no, not for me. If you like that, please stay there. And I'm not saying that you do, Daniel. I'm just saying that like, if you're that person that likes to like control how tall your neighbor's grass is, please stay in these places. Because I don't want you coming out to my semi-rural environment bitching and saying, we need a homeowners association out here because it's unincorporated and the city won't do anything. I don't want you here. Nobody else wants you here, so stay there. But if you don't want people like that around you, what are you doing there? But in the end, you have to, okay, where do you, where are you going to work? How long are you willing to commute? I think that people have this, this debate in their heads all the time. Now, if you're deciding where your house is going to be, Because you believe the road warrior wars are coming and you want to know the best place to exist when the apocalypse comes. You're thinking in fear and that's a bad idea. If you're that concerned about it, get some worthless ass piece of land, fully stock a location out there and be ready to jet out of Dodge. At least you'll own a piece of real estate somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. You can always sell that for an appreciated value later. If that's, if that makes you comfortable and that makes you, and you don't have to be stupid to do it, fine. And then live wherever makes sense for you. You know, I lived for a long time in a suburban neighborhood in Arlington, Texas. Why? It made sense. It made sense for that time in my life. Now I live in a semi-rural area near Eagle Mountain Lake, Texas. It's as close as I get with giving out my address on air. But you know what? It makes sense for me now. There's people like, man, I thought you'd live further out. Why? Why did you think that? Because you're a survivalist. Okay. Do you really think that moving another 10 miles out is going to protect you? And the type of breakdown that some people are really scared of? You might actually be much more safe if you can organize a community to defend the community. It's all dependent. But in the end, you know, is it reasonable to debate whether or not to have a rural or a city property? Of course it is. Daniel, you and your, your wife have to sit down and ask, what do you want in your life today? What do you want in your life in the next five years, 10 years, and 15 years? What kind of job are you going to have? What kind of lifestyle do you want? What can you afford? What can you not afford? But let me tell you something I think you really need to do. You need to ban words like maximize appreciation from your decision. You really do. What you need to be doing is looking for what do you want and then finding the best deal there is that fits what you want. That's how you maximize appreciation value without being stupid. Because when you start saying maximize appreciation value, you are going to buy a house in a place full of people that you don't want to be around. You were in the Peace Corps in 2009? Think about your living conditions then. right? And think about some of the things you probably want to do based on what you've learned about the world as far as self-sufficiency, kind of work you want to do for yourself, if not for your profession. And think about the type of people that live in a place where you would maximize your appreciation value and ask yourself if you really think they want you to do that there. 
I'm making some assumptions. I could be wrong. Maybe you don't care about that. Maybe you've gone from Peace Corps days to driving a Lexus and having an Acura SUV with your wife being a soccer mom. I don't know. I don't know. But my guess is, if you're listening to my show, probably not. You know? You probably want a garden. You probably want to be self-sufficient. you got to make your lifestyle-based decision, not your maximize appreciation decision. And I think that you'll find in the future that properties that are highly self-sufficient will have a lot of appreciated value. So I don't care whether you're Daniel or anybody else out there trying to figure out where your next home is. Buy it based on the lifestyle you want for yourself, and then, damn it, build it. And if you want to do it right in the middle of the urban, you know, chicness, go ahead. But when your neighbor bitches because your, your, your tree is the wrong color or you've parked your car in the driveway so you can keep quail in your garage or whatever it is, understand you've in some ways done it to yourself. Let's... Uh, Let's go ahead and take one more. Um, this is another one of the Jack was right things where Jack doesn't like being right. So I've been telling you guys for a long time now that the days of the gas tax will eventually either end or change and will be replaced by being paying by the mile. That all of us will end up with some type of tracking mechanism that tracks where we drive, how fast we drive, where we go, and then will tax us based on mileage. And that initially it might just be raw mileage. Like you drove X miles, you pay Z. You drove Y miles, you pay A, right? But that eventually they would get more nebulous with it and they would do things like, well, you were driving at 5.30. That's peak time. It costs more. Um, or you were driving at 3 a.m. There's no traffic out then. You'll pay a little bit less. You know, you drove over the speed limit. We're not giving you a ticket, but we're going to charge you a surcharge, uh, 10% more per mile or whatever it is. But that was all in the works and all planned. So... <laughs> This is on the Atlantic. Uh, the era of pay-per-mile driving has begun. In 1919, Oregon became the first state to implement a gas tax, a penny-a-gallon fee that was supposed to pay for new roads and maintain muddy ones that were already existing. Now it's the first state, at least, of, uh, at least kind of, to say goodbye to it. This week, the Oregon legislator passed a bill to replace the state's gas tax program with a pay-per-mile road usage charge often known as a vehicle miles traveled or VMT tax. Drivers who make the switch will pay 1.5 cents for every mile they drive instead of 30 cents per gallon at the pump. The extent of the current law is greatly limited. Participation will be voluntary and capped at 5,000 drivers, but the potential as a model for the country is not. The gas tax has been losing purchasing power for years, partly to the rise of fuel-efficient cars and partly to simple inflation. The federal gas tax is projected to fail in 2015. You notice they don't say what fail means. And state failures are just as imminent. In Oregon, as elsewhere, cities bear most of the responsibility for road maintenance as urban VMT figures are rising relative to rural ones. So vehicle miles traveled charged. So urban miles charged have gone down from, if you had a baseline of 100%, down to about 80%, so a 20% drop. Where people living in urban environments uh, are going, uh, rural has gone down and urban has gone up. So rural's gone down by 20%. Urban's gone up by about 15% on this graph. We need to examine that and ask what the hell's going on. So people are driving less if they're rural and more if they're urban. 
Isn't it, according to all the people with the planned communities and all, isn't that backwards? I'll tell you what's happened. A lot of people that moved out in the rural communities are telecommuting. That's that's the reason. It doesn't say that in this article, but that's the reason. So people have figured, I want the hell out of the city. They get out of the city, and they had to drive all the way back to work. And people did that for years and years and years. Along came the Internet and a new society and a lot more entrepreneurialism. And rural drivers are now driving 20% less than they were in 1999. Let me say that again. Rural drivers are now driving 20% less miles than they were in 1999. And urban drivers are driving about 15% more miles than they were in 1999. And we trust these people. Really? I mean, isn't that just absolutely... This is a government graph. Isn't that absolutely counter to everything they've ever told you? And yet you trust them on so many things. Why? Despite the dire situation, lawmakers have been hesitant to overhaul the gas tax program for several reasons. From political fears of raising taxes to easy management of fuel surcharge to privacy concerns about government tracking personal driving mileage. Because they would never do that, right? What should make Oregon rise toward the VMT model so instructive for other states is how officials dealt with each of these problems in an open and gradual way. The state has been preparing the public for a per-mile road charge since back in 2007 when it completed a pilot program program that demonstrated the viability of the VMT tax. The pilot had the dual effect of encouraging public support with 9 in 10 participants liking the switch. Another pilot which wrapped up earlier this year tested 5 mileage reporting sorry, tested 5 mileage reporting methods from smartphone tracking to simple odometer to address the fears of Big Brother. So how does that address the fears of We'll just put an app on your smartphone. We'll just look at your odometer once a month. I mean, seriously? The, the model of testing and transparency is exactly the approach that experts have recommended to overcome the public's perception problem toward road pricing. In other words, if you, if you slowly take away people's right to privacy, they won't get as mad as if you do it quickly. That's what that says. Okay. First, officials must demonstrate the effectiveness of these programs through a pilot. Then they must inform people how the new system will work. That's the winning formula, and wittingly or not, that's the one Oregon followed. That doesn't mean criticism of a per-mile fee system will disappear. A common complaint echoed by at least one state representative after the recent vote is that the VMT tax removes a person's incentive to buy an electric or hybrid car. It's true that these drivers lose some of their cost advantage in a VMT system, but you buy a Leaf or a Prius to save on gas costs in general, not the tiny gas taxes in particular. And of course, to be environmentally conscious. Besides, one can even argue that a VMT system might reduce auto dependency by keeping people aware of their driving costs, just as they're aware through monthly bills of their other utility expenses. Additionally, advanced VMT tax is even capable of controlling congestion on certain roads by varying the fee. Gee, Jack doesn't know anything. As long as some of the money goes toward enhancing public transit in low-income corridors, social justice, Jeez. <laughs> As long as some of the money goes toward enhancing public transit in low-income corridors, there's no reason a VMT program can't be equitable. To repeat, the nature of the current law makes Oregon's per-mile program a modest milestone, but it's a milestone nonetheless, just like that penny gas tax back in 1919, and now as then should serve as a guide for the rest of the country to follow. What a jackass. Seriously. So let me explain something to you. 
you, you got to understand here. 1.5 cents per mile. That's 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 not so bad. That's not so bad. Let, let's do some math there, Jack. Well, even for a high mileage driver, that's only seven dollars and fifty cents on a five hundred dollar, five hundred mile weekly drive. That's probably less than the gas tax. No, it's not. No, it's not. Well, yes, it is. No, it's not. Doesn't include federal taxes. It's only Oregon state tax. Doesn't include the city taxes. It's only Oregon state taxes. So you know, like some some places, like you pay more in one city than the other. It doesn't address the city's tax, and it doesn't address the federal tax, only the Oregon State mileage tax. And it's voluntary. How, how exactly are these 5,000 people not paying gas taxes? How, how is that going to work? Um, the, it, it, we shouldn't be worried about Big Brother because, hey, they were transparent about the fact that they're going to track your vehicle with odometer readings or license plates or RFID tags or a smartphone app. Don't, don't worry about being tracked because they told you. I mean... This is the mind of a freaking big government liberal. It really is. This is the mind of a big government liberal. Hey, look, they're doing what they said, so we can trust them to do what they said. I do trust them to do what they said they're going to do. They're going to track you and tax you for driving based on the time of day and where you drive and use this as yet another scheme to redistribute wealth. I completely trust that they're going to do that. Moron! That's why I don't want them to do this. This has turned into a, a show that's really raised my blood pressure today. I'm almost not happy with today's show because I got so pissed off today, guys. I'm done. I'm not. I'm not going to cover any more stories today or any more questions or any more feedback. I'm going to. I'm going to close up on some thoughts. I get this angry and I get this upset because I understand the history of our nation that's led us to the problems that we're in. And what I've talked about today are basically the continuations of the policies that have created the problem in the first place and the willful participation in them by the very citizens who have a duty to uphold and defend the Constitution. Do you, do you understand, folks, that it's not the military and the police and the government that has the true duty to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States? It's the citizen. That the reason that these officials and members of our military and members of law enforcement have to take that oath is because they're trusted with power not because it's their their you know just because it's their duty it's not like okay you don't have a duty and then you take one of these positions and you do it's you you have a duty period as a citizen but when you're given power you have to affirm that you understand that so that you don't trample on the freedoms and liberties of the citizens who have entrusted you with that power. Do you, do, do you understand that? I, I've heard people like may, mainly, you know, uh, conservative right wing radio types say things like this that sounds like it makes sense. America is a nation of laws. If you hear somebody say that, you should just turn them off. Unless they're doing it the way I am, where they're, they're bringing it up, that, that other people say it. America is not a nation of laws. America is a nation of liberties. And any laws that exist should be for the preservation of liberty. The laws in this nation are to preserve liberty, not to run the nation with law. Think about that. I've gotten a lot of feedback lately from people that say, you know, you spend too much time talking about permaculture and gardening and farming and, 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 you know, things like that. Or, 
or you know skill, even skill sets and things like that, that, that. What we should be focusing on is things like we talked about today. Are you angry after some of the things you've heard today? Are you upset about some of the things that you've heard today? Uh, fine. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to call your congressman and, and waste your energy and your time with that little exercise again to be ignored? Are you going to write them to get a form letter back from a page who didn't even read the original thing? Have you gotten some of those form letters back from congressmen you write them that you can tell there's no way they possibly read? No, even the, They didn't even have like five form letters and some you know page didn't select the right one. Like the, the response is so in conflict with what you said that no congressperson, no elected official would ever want to actually enrage you so much if they actually knew that's what they were doing. But they're such idiots and they have such contempt for the people they supposedly serve. They just don't care. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Official statements prepared and screw it. If they don't like it, they don't like it. Hey, my think tank figured out what I needed to say to make the majority of people happy anyway. So I don't care about the people that disagree with what I'm doing. I don't care about the Constitution. That's where these people are. I focus on planning your life and your lifestyle. I focus on creating your own security and independence with energy, with food, with water. I focus on these things because they're the only solutions that we have. I, I almost feel like I need to take a shower after doing today's show because I feel filthy. Not that I've done something wrong, but just the, the content itself is so disgusting the greatest nation on the planet destroying its own currency the states that are leading us fastest into bankruptcy stealing more money of its own people and saying that it's a solution a congressman telling a person being attacked that they're the ones with the duty of retreat Being taxed for moving and having your movement tracked and being told it's okay because they said they were going to do it before they did it. This in the nation that's supposed to be the freest nation in the world. I just had this conversation with my brother-in-law. I, I brought up a little bit of it, but it was you know the part about China. Yeah, this, and they're communists, and they oppress their people, and you should see how poor some of the people in China are. Really? How about going to the south side of Chicago and seeing how poor some of the people in this country are? Some of the parts of the Appalachian region in, in, in Tennessee and Kentucky and seeing how poor people are right here. How, how is it that we use that as an out? Well, India is making real financial inroads in the world and we're, we're falling behind in some of the things they're doing. Yeah, but look how many poor people live in India. What does that have to do? With the issue that our country's falling behind. It's so easy for us to say, well, those people over there are oppressed. Are we oppressed? I remember growing up in school and being told that the reason we were free and the people in Russia weren't was because when they voted, they could vote for either one communist or another, and I actually had a choice. I have to tell you that today... I feel pretty ripped off being lied to for so many years that I had a choice because instead of C or C, I got D or R. Because really got was F or F. What type of fascist would you like running your state or your country? There's your choice. We'll call them Democrats and Republicans. 
We'll say that we're running a democratically elected republic, but in the end, we'll have a corporatocracy and a plutocracy run the nation using the elected officials as surrogates, perfectly dividing the people and convincing them they had a choice so that no man is more enslaved than, than, than that who falsely believes himself to be free. This is the nation we're in today. And you wonder, how do you keep a positive outlook on things like that? How do you stay positive? How can I put all the effort and work, not just into the survival podcast, but into my property and in my own life? Because in the end, you're only a slave if you choose to be. Let me say that again. In the end, you're only a slave if you choose to be a slave. Many of us in this country have chosen slavery. We've chosen to be in prison. We've been convinced that decorating the walls of the cell and changing the colors of the bars and deciding what view we had from behind the bars was freedom. We've built our own cells, installed our own bars, and created our own nightmare and told ourselves it was the American dream. We've done it with debt. We've done it with choosing a career because we were told it's the one we needed to have and believing that since we had invested so much time in what comes out to a mistake, that we needed to continue that mistake until we retired. I know people that are teachers that hate teaching. Quit. Go do something else. I know people that are doing jobs that pay better than teaching but love to teach. Go teach. Whether it be in a school or finding another way to do it. Basically, what I do is I'm an educator. I teach. And I make you think. I don't tell you what the answers are. I help you find your own answers. That's true education, in my opinion. I love teaching, so I found a way to do it. If you actually love to teach children, though, go teach in a school. Instead, we have teachers that hate their jobs, that would do well doing something else, and people doing those very other things that wish they could teach but don't believe they can afford That decision. You know what you can't afford? You can't afford to waste the average of 70 to 90 years that we all get. You can't afford it. You can't afford to focus on the things that I'm telling you about today. You must be aware of them. Because sooner or later they will affect you. You can't be blind to the fact that this country is going to fall from economic pro pro uh, prominence that we will not be the most important economic power in the world. You can't ignore that, but you don't need to focus on it. You just need to accept it and say, okay, then I'm going to have to worry about myself a little bit more than if that were not true. You can't sit around focusing on the fact that your Congress and your Senate and your President and just about every department of government is bought and paid for by the corporatocracy the financial elite, and the plutocracy. For those who don't know, a plutocracy is ruled by money, ruled by the wealthy. And a corporatocracy is ruled by the corporation. We have both in this country. You can't sit around focusing on it. You'll never get anything done. But you have to be aware of it. That's why occasionally I'll do a show like this, and I'll go ahead and yell, and I'll scream, and I'll snap out, and I'll tell you to wake the hell up to make sure you haven't forgotten. But in the end, the solutions are internal. You either are a slave by choice or you are a free being 
by choice, and there is no option C. There's no option C. There's nowhere to run away to. I hear from some of you sometimes, you know, why don't you do a show about leaving the country and go where? The best place I can find, by the way, is probably Costa Rica. And you ain't free any more than you are here. You just have certain things that are not oppressed upon and other things that are. There's actually plenty of nations today where you have a great deal more liberty than you do here. And all of them have areas where you have less. Choosing your form of slavery by choosing your master is not freedom. I am more and more moving in the way of anarchist thought. But not anarchism as a system. Anarchism is a lifestyle. The purest anarchist would say, I do not have a driver's license and I will drive my car because I have a right to do so. I have a freedom of travel. I help pay for that road. Even if I'm an anarchist and say I didn't, I know one way or another I contributed so I can drive on that road. That's dumb because you get to go to jail for that. I look at myself as an anarchist in thought. And what I mean by that is that road was built by a society and by people who are using it and people that used it in the past. And there's certain rules that go with that road. I'll follow those rules when I'm on that road, including having a little card that has my name on it that says who I am and what I do, you know, where I can be found and how I can be contacted. And if I get in a wreck with you, I'll have insurance to cover that because that's the agreement I made on that road. But if I happen to have enough land... And I want to put a, pro a car on that land that has no license plate, no registration, whatever. That's my business. And that's really a metaphor for how I'm trying to live my entire life now. If I have a problem with somebody, I'll try to solve that problem between us before I ever involve authority. And I'll make every single effort I can. And I would more likely go to an independent a third party with no authority to mediate the problem than I ever would go to authority. I think if you have a problem with your neighbor and you and your neighbor can't figure it out, what makes sense is to take maybe a walk down your street and think, who's the who's the guy that's lived here the longest? It seems like the guy that always has a solution to every problem. Why don't we go talk to him and see if he can help us figure out this problem? That's actually anarchism. That's real anarchism. And I think that all of us need to start being somewhat an anarchist in our own lives. And that means that You follow the rules of somebody else's house as long as they're in their house. When you're in your own house, you do whatever the hell you please. And I think that's the solution. I didn't ask anybody's permission when I got a flock of chickens. But I sure made an effort to find a place where it wouldn't be a problem in the first place. But if somebody wants to complain about it, since authority doesn't exist, I'm not even going to fight it. I'm just going to ignore it. It's not my problem. It's not my problem. And there's so many of us out there that we're living our lives fighting people that have no authority, arguing people that have no authority. I can't tell you how many emails I get. I'm talking to my cousin. He thinks we should do this, and I think we should do that, and he won't listen. What should I tell him? Absolutely nothing. Is your cousin a congressman? Is he a governor? Does he work for the EPA? No. Why do you care what he thinks? He has no authority. He can no more get what he wants done than you can get what you want done on a national scale. America, will you listen to me? 
while you fight with each other over things that neither one of you really can influence, the people that actually do this stuff are doing whatever they want and laughing as you waste your energy. They're planning their exodus right now. They're going to leave this country in mass. And they're going to continue to own its intrinsic wealth. I've already told you how they're doing this. For those who don't remember, Goldman Sachs purchased Smithfield Port Products, the largest port producer in the United States, through a Chinese shell corporation run by the former son of a Chinese prime minister. It's 100% true, 100% fact, and 100% public record. And Congress actually allowed it because of that. They said it wasn't a threat to national security because it wasn't the Chinese government buying Smithfield. It was a private company with significant U.S. interest involved. And the sheep will nod their head in collective obedience and say, okay. This is not the country you live in. This is the world you live in. And it's why you have to focus on solutions. It's why you have to invest in your own future. It's why you have to think with the permaculture concept of the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for ourselves and for that of our children. If you spend your energy and time building systems that will support you and your family and generations into the future, your grandchildren will thank you. If when this country is bankrupt, financially and morally, and your grandchildren are suffering because of it, and you're suffering right alongside them, if there's enough of a bond in the family to keep you in the same place, so we've lost that multi-generational lifestyle. If it's there and if you're talking to them in that state, telling them, but I voted for the blank, won't feed them or keep them warm or make them feel that you're less responsible for where they are. I want you to really think about that today. I want you to think about moving yourself into the future into your 70s if you're not already there. And I want you to sit about, think about sitting down and talking to an 18-year-old or 20-year-old or 25-year-old grandchild who's looking out at a decimated United States economy, something that makes Argentina look like a nice place to be right now. Depleted natural resources, an agricultural system completely destroyed. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about all of the things that you're afraid will happening, actually happening, or 10% of them happening, or 20%, or 30%, whatever you think. And I want you to think about having a conversation and telling that grandchild, but I wrote letters to my congressman. I blogged about it. Hell, I had a podcast about it. Gee, Grandpa, what are we going to do? I don't know. I don't know. I fought it, but I lost. I voted for the right people. I wrote the right letters. Or I argued with your uncle. How hollow, 
how hollow would those words be in the society that we're headed for? And what if you said, you know what? We're part of this new world. This would be the alternative. We're part of this new world. Our family has developed ways that we can provide some of our own energy. No one in this family is going to go hungry. Whether we live in a small lot or a big field, I planted things when I was your age that are benefiting you today. I didn't risk everything for such a little return. I put away certain things. I taught your father to take care of himself, and he's taught you. And now that we live in a society where things have really fallen apart, this family is the one that knows how to put them back together, and we're already doing that. We're already engaged in doing that. You wouldn't even have to have the conversation with this young person because they would already know. Which 70 or 75-year-old man or woman do you want to be? The one that says, I tried. I argued with your uncle. I voted for the right side of the equation, whatever side you think that is. Or, I'm glad I'm still here at your side. I have years of wisdom behind me that got us here. I'm happy to see what you're doing to make things right. And I hope what I did has gotten you into a place where you can be effective with that. This is why I spend so much time talking about how to grow your own food or produce your own energy or invest wisely beyond which stock to buy. Because I know damn well that I will leave something for my son and his children and their children that lasts and they won't look back and think he didn't do anything they'll at least know I fought for real I really did something that's what I hope for from every member of this audience that you're thinking in that multi-generational level about your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and a nation that is falling from grace but a world that, while it changes, will always remain the same in certain ways. And that always comes back to you're either a slave by choice or a free being by choice. If you choose to be a slave, your future generations will likely make the same choice. And worse yet, they'll resent you for it. But if you choose to be a free, independent being... And you take them into your consideration as you do this. And you work to build something that lasts. If you truly get this one quote from me, plant a garden for yourself, but plant a forest for your children. If you do that, your children and their children likely will choose to be free beings as well. And whatever happens, they will be part of the solution rather than victims of the problem. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Revolution.